Hello, everyone. Turn on the power. You know, start getting yourself relaxed because we're going to have a really good show today. Some really nice things are going to come about from this show that's going to set some set some things clear. First, this has been a crazy week. Funk DeFino in Portsmouth. Yo, that was off the chain. I could have still been playing there from now to the other night on Saturday night. I flew in for that gig. Fabulous. Tony Broad, Russ, the gang, the staff, Kylie, his his fiance. That's Tony's fiance, Kylie Cox. Incredible. And I want to wish them a wonderful and safe holiday in Turkey because they're out there right now. Also, another thing, send your prayers and, you know, positive thoughts to these people in Israel and Palestine. This thing is serious, and I'm just hoping it doesn't erupt into a world war, you know, because Lord knows it's not going to end quickly, and it's not going to end the way we like it, but it must end, and please hurry um tiktok we're doing really good so i'm starting to replay shows on tiktok so that you guys can experience some of the older shows that you've never seen or you didn't know about and now you can actually catch them right on tiktok who would ever thought i'd be a tiktoker because i was like Oh, I don't want to go on TikTok. Oh, I hate TikTok. But you know what? I've been proven wrong. TikTok does work. And we need more places to show this show. And I was talking to this young man that I'm going to bring up in a minute because he's young at heart. He's got a lot of energy. And every from time to time, we run into each other. Last time I saw him was at Ministry of Sound. Uh, for a gig a couple months back. And, you know, he ran up to me. He's like, yo, man, I got to do the show. I was like, of course. He's definitely on my radar. But the problem is, it's like, I got to try to get everyone on this show and we don't have that much time. (laughs) So I try to handpick and try to fill in the times if I'm not traveling or doing things. The most important part, I want to say, I want to thank DJ Spen yesterday for being on his show, the Tuesday night show with Listen to Demos. And he said something to his viewers, and I want to thank him for. And he said, Lenny Fontana, through the 1990s, led the pack, right? And so he was talking about me as a house DJ and record producer, because in those those days, it's all I ever did. Eat, breathe, repeat. Got on a plane and did it week to week, city to city, strength to strength, ran to record labels, did all that stuff. But he said something that really was profound. He said, now trailblazing with his new show, True House Stories. And he is a trailblazer. I take that to heart. Nothing comes close to what we have produced for this show. And I'm so glad all of you realize the importance of this show and what this show brings to all of you. Um, we get to unearth history from time to time, things that never were written, 
never were said because of circumstances, situations. And the wonderful thing about it is, is that we get a chance on this show because I don't cut off my people. And you'll hear why. Because I always wanted to make sure you felt that we were in just having a combo, a conversation, me and the camera. It's me and you. Just like I'd ask you, hey, how are you doing today? And then you'll tell me and we'll just start talking and chat and shop. And that's the way it needs to be. So welcome to True House Stories of Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City. And New York has an affection with the UK. Back and forth, Chicago too. And I've always seemed to be like, why are you always going to New York, Chicago, London? New York, Chicago, London. Well, well, a lot of things happened in these three cities. New York City, Chicago, and London. There was a time in the 90s where you would go see, may he rest in peace, Paul Trouble Anderson on a Wednesday night at the loft doing his thing. Rocking those sounds and playing everybody's new American records. And you're sitting there going, Oh, that's my record. Oh, that's Jovan's record. Oh, that's such and such's record. And oh, it's that, or it's Booker's record, or Phil Asher, or you know, whatever it would be. But it was like that was like the Paradise Garage of the time in London. And this is why I'm coming to this now. I'm bringing up this man who started in the 80s playing reggae. Okay, and R&B. Cutting dub plates before they were called acetates. Just called cutting dub plates, doing his thing. And in the 90s, like everything else in life, dance music is becoming the profound thing that everybody's getting into on both sides of the ocean. It's becoming more accessible and more nif in your face. And it makes it a lot easier to want to be part of something that's all around you. And it kind of lends itself to the musics of R&B, soul, reggae. It has the smorgasbord, I should say. So wherever you f follow your allegiance to, if it's reggae, you'll find, believe me, Raga House or something that would make you say, that works for me. So this man, Booker T, found his place. And it's not like he left reggae behind. He just stepped up into the rest of us and said, I'm going to take a piece of this action and I'm going to do it my way. So without further ado, I'm going to bring up the man himself, Booker T. What's happening? What's happening, bro? <laughs> What's up? Easy, Lenny. How are you, sir? You all right? My friend, how are you? Everything good? Yeah, man. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm here. Just chilling, you know? I'm here, in, here ready for you now. That's important that you say that because we were talking off camera about being still left and being here. Yeah. Um, I was talking about trouble, you know, and trouble's no longer with us, of course, but he was a very part to this house music thing, right? Yeah. But you know, let's not let's not bring tears, let's actually celebrate life too. Let's talk That's about right. you. That's right. So yes, because I know you got a lot to tell us, Booker. So let's get right into it. First question I ask, and then the rest you go, my man. Here we go. Yeah. How does music find you as a young kid? Uh, music, man, it was about my life, man. I love music. When I was growing up, my dad used to play music indoors. You know, there was a lot of parties at my dad's house and that, you know. So um, 
I'd be a little kid sitting down on the stairs, listening to my dad and my mum and her friends partying and hearing the reggae music and that. Plus the area that I grew up in, I grew up in Brixton, South London. You know, so South London was more of a sound system culture um, back in the early 80s. Well, 70s, kind of late 70s. That's when I got into the sound system culture. You know, so um, I started playing reggae first, um, mainly um, dubs, um, classic reggae, lovers rock, you know. And I joined a sound called Ito Rockers. That was from an area called Lando Road. That's more or less in Brixton, in between Clapham and Brixton. Now that was the first sound that I kind of followed and started hanging out with. You know, I'm just going to run through a quick thing about my reggae vibes and all that. Yeah, so um, that was the first sound I started following. Um, a sound called Ito Rockers. And uh, the next sound I joined was a sound called like Frontline, Frontline International. That's where I got my skill of um, getting dub plates, cutting dubs. I was kind of like a runner for this guy called Natty Frontline. He used to be the main selector for Frontline sound. So what he used to do, he used to give me the tapes and I used to go to um, the dub cutting companies to cut the dubs. My, I used to go to Music House, but that time Music House wasn't. Music House was in Finsbury Park and another place called Terry Newman that was in Swiss Cottage. That's where I used to go and cut dubs. So in the 80s, I was cutting a lot of um, unreleased stuff that was coming out from Jamaica, you know, exclusive dub plates that were playing for the sound, for frontline sound, you know. So that's the kind of music that I was cutting then. And then after that, I started doing my own little thing and I joined a sound called Taurus. Taurus High Power, and that sounds another Brixton sound that I started um, being a main selector for, along with a guy named Jeremiah and Lefty, Lefty B. So on that level now, I was cutting, getting dubs from Jamaica myself, going to the dub cutting house, cutting at Terry Newman, cutting at Music House, cutting all over the place, just to play exclusive dub plates against other sounds like Saxon, um, Tubbies, Coxon, you know, Nasty Rockers, loads of different sounds in South London, Unity, Hi-Fi. Um, there was loads of different sounds anyway. But those were the sounds that I was kind of messing with back in the early 80s. How important was it for you to cut those plates? Could you have done it just on the record? So what was the reason for someone like yourself as a DJ to cut, cut those acetates? Well, the reason why we was cutting them because it was the first one who plays them first, you know, so they were exclusive dubs. They were exclusive tunes that wasn't out yet. So for us to for us to play them exclusive, we had to have, we had to take them to a dub cutting place to cut them so we can play them out exclusively. That was the main thing we was cutting dubs for. You had the released versions and you had the like the dub plate versions. So what we used to do is go to the dub cutting. So we cut this for exclusively for us to play or whichever sound that you're playing with, you know? So that was the that was the main reason. Do you remember how much it was to actually cut those plates? Well, I can't remember. Back in those days, I think it was like maybe about could be about about fifty, sixty pounds or something like that. It's quite expensive back in them days, man. I'm sure it was about fifty quid or something, maybe a bit less, could be about forty pounds or something like that. I can't remember that back that way back, but I'm sure it was about forty pounds or something like that. And that was expensive back in them days. Yeah, no, that's... But they were, ten, but they were 10 inches as well. They weren't 12 inches, of 10-inch dub plates. 10-inch, right? Yeah, 10-inch dub plates, yeah. Two tracks aside, man. Two tracks. 
Okay, so give us the landscape of what London's like, because you know the sound system culture is a big thing in the eighties. Yeah, okay. yeah. Was there? Were you guys actually? With was it? For example, I remember Norman Jay talking about this too, and his brother. Mm -hmm. You know, they had carnival. It was pre-carnival. They were just building the systems and just taking them out. Was that what you were doing too, as well? Yeah, we was doing that as well, but we was playing more in clashes at uh, um like big town or dances, clubs, big clubs like four races and all that. It's like three sounds in one dance and we're all playing against each other, playing for the crowd, but we're playing against each other, plus playing who's going to be playing the best tunes and the hottest tunes and the tunes that's not out yet. You know, so that was the kind of thing. It was more like a sound flash thing, you know? Sorry. So that's okay. So that's, you know, that's because people, you know, they, they don't understand how important that sound clash was. Like, yeah. I went to Carnival. I understood it. But most people, if you never experienced it, you don't know what that's like, you know? Yeah, when it's DJs, it's kind of like DJs against DJs, isn't it, really? You know, sound system crews against different sound systems. Who's got the best music? Like DJs play now, you know? If you've got five different DJs playing in a party the same night, every DJ's going to try to play the best tune, aren't they, for the, for the crowd? So that's what it was, really. But the thing was different. We all had our own sounds. So three different sound systems in one club. All right, so you've got a crew over that side with the sound system, another crew over that side with their sound system, and my crew over my side with my sound system. It's whose sound system sounds the best and who's got the best music. That's and who's right. got exclusive music as well, you know? Booker, did you do it for money in those days? No, 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 no. I didn't even get no money, man. I just did it for the love. <laughs> people. No, I wasn't getting no money. I love what I was doing, bro. It wasn't about the money. I love music. That was the first thing I... First thing for me was, right, it was getting to know the people in, getting to know who's who in the scene, right, and just learning about the music culture and about the scene and about getting dubs and doing, it's just, it was all about, it was all about the love for me anyway. That's what, that's all I can say. I just love that. You know, you hear that same thing with everybody and everybody must be wondering, Lenny pops in, pops out, goes out, comes in. Okay. So, mm -hmm. Passion seems to be a word I hear from everyone when there's no intrinsic thinking and money. You know, let's take coins and paper away from the situation. Mm. You know, what drives you to go and want to be the best at this? Tell, you know, what, what would drive you to, to be that top guy there? I don't know. It's just, the, it, it, you know what it is? It's just, it just was a vibes and the energy, man. You know, anything you do, you do want to try and be the best at it, you know, but, um, it just was a, it's, it's like a competition thing. It was just a vibe, a cultural vibe of just saying, yeah, I can play music better than this guy here. Or I can play better tunes, looking for better tunes to play than the other DJ. It just was, it just was a good vibe, man. It just was love, really. You know, that's how I saw it. In the time of the 80s, was London with this music, especially club owners and stuff, did you guys mm. find it a bit racist with some of the owners letting you guys come in there to bring oh. in that sound? It's true. I got to bring it up. Yeah, 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 it was. It was. It was hard for us as black youths back in the, even in the 70s and 80s, to have to get these clubs that you can play in the West End or in the city and all that. Most of the reggae dancers were mainly in. Either tunnels, um, small clubs in the area like Brixton or maybe Dalston, where mostly black communities are, you know. So it was really hard. 
to get into those places, you know. So what we usually did, we did blues dances, dances in houses, party dances in houses, and just clubs in the area that that hosted a lot of black, where a lot of black people lived. But going into the West End, that was a no-no back in the day, man. Is it because the element that com- would come out, would it be more of a militant type of atmosphere? Like, you know, some of the hip-hop events of today, you know, with gun running and stuff, or is just that... No, it wasn't that. No, back in those days, it wasn't really any of that gun running stuff. Back in the 80s, it wasn't that really, man. No, no, no. It was just more like... It's just more like they just didn't want too much black people in the same place at the same time, man. You know what I mean? But... You know, at one stage, back in those days, it's either you're into soul or you're into reggae. You know, there weren't no house, there weren't no jungle, there weren't no garage, there were none of that back in the day. It was either soul or reggae. You either like soul music or you either like reggae. There's a lot of black guys who was into soul music, you know, and there was a lot of black guys who was into reggae. You know what I mean? But most of us all grew up on a sound system culture. Paul Trouble Anderson grew up on a sound system culture. You know, he had his sound system back in the days, Trouble Funk, you know? There was lots, loads of us, Bobby and Steve. Most of us grew up on sound system culture, you know, through the Caribbean, through our Caribbean parents, our families from the Caribbean and that, you know, most of them grew up on soca, soul, reggae, you know, they weren't, there wasn't none of these other music then. There wasn't even house music then. So, you know, it was only two vibes. So did you at that time, did you, were you going back and forth to the West Indies? Like, and were you around, like, for example, Sunsplash and that stuff that was- no. Later on in the 90s, I started going to those things, you know what I mean? But in the 80s, I didn't really, you know. My parents are not Jamaican at all. My parents are from Guyana. Guyana? Right? Okay. Yeah, Guyana. My parents are Guyanese, yeah. But um, my parents grew up on soul reggae, calypso as well, you know what I mean? My dad bought a lot of soul music. My dad's a big fan of soul music. You know, the, all the early, um, the OJs, a lot of the Philadelphia international stuff. My dad loved all that stuff, you know what I mean? And it, uh, um, all the James Brown, Funkadelic, Parliament and that. You know, so that's what my dad grew up on. My mum was more into Teddy Prendergrass. She loved all the love songs and all that, you know? But they both still were into soca and reggae as well, you know? So that was the style of music that we grew up on. It's funny you mention that because in New York, there was this white DJ that was playing some of the most funkiest Jamaican things and, you know, soak and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And his name was Bobby Condors. I've heard of him, man. Bobby Condors, yes. <laughs> and everybody thought Bobby was a black DJ. And when Bobby came out, he was as white as day and he used to wear his hat to the side, but Bobby was just yeah. Jamaican. Yep, the legendary Bobby yeah. Condors. Yeah, he's been reggae big time. There was that time in the scene that these this music was finding its way from dance hall into dance. That's why I mm. want to know how Gary Booker T finds his way from dance hall. Mm. Where's the transition? Into, into dance. Yeah, well, you got to remember, music started to change. Everything started to change. The explosion of hip-hop. When hip-hop came in, that was a new flex for me. I didn't hear this kind of music before. It was like me and my friend said, wow, this music's great. We need to start, we need to start letting go reggae, man, and start going to these house parties. I mean, these um, hip hop raves and all that. But this was the early hip hop parties and all that I used to go to. That's how I met Paul Trouble Anderson because Paul Trouble Anderson was playing hip hop and boogie and funk back in the day. You know, so this is in the eighties as well. This is how I got to meet Paul Trouble Anderson. I started to go to, um, 
Kiss FM, Kiss FM, I think Kiss FM just started then. All the pirates started to come out and all that. That time, I was, oh yeah, let me explain something. I was on a station called Phase One Radio, yeah? Fabio, Groove Rider, um, DJ Crime, Commander B, a lot of us from South London was on that station. That time I started playing soul and funk and boogie. That was from, that's just before, just before the hip hop explosion. And as soon as hip hop came out, I jumped into hip hop, started to play a bit of hip hop and R&B. Let me just well. jump in. Yeah. Phase radio. What was that? East London, West London? No, South London, South London. Phase one radio was South, South London. South London station pirate, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. How the big? Of the pirate station. How big of the wattage was it? How big? Or how small? Was we were, no, we was all, we was more or less majority of London, you know. We was in South, but you can hear us all over London. There was the main stations. You got LWR, you got Rock to Rock, you got Kiss, Phase One, you know. But we was playing on us on the station that we was playing. We was playing a lot of rear groove, soul, funk, boogie. We had a bit of reggae on there as well. But that time, I kind of left the scene, the reggae scene, and I got into the arm. I got into the rear groove. But at that time, was Fabio and Groove Rider playing? No, yeah. there wasn't no. There weren't no jungle or That's no drum and bass. They were Clark playing. Clark. Yeah, Fabio and Groove Rider were playing funk and disco, man. Fabio and Groove Rider. Oh, yeah. Fabio used to play after me. I eh? think Fabio and Groove Rider on the show. I want to hear them say that. Yeah, yeah. Funk and disco. Yeah, man. Fabio. Yeah, because that's what was playing back in them days. Fabio, I'll give. Listen, shout out to Fabio, man. Fabio knows his music. You know, what I mean, Fabio's been playing funk from back, from back, way back. You know, from back in the early 80s. He wasn't even really a reggae man. He was more of a funk, boogie, disco and all that. You know what I mean? Um, Fabio's a great DJ, man. But yeah, we all was on the same station. Phase I'm one. Not questioning, no, no, I'm not questioning his skill. We know he's I a know that, I know that, I know that. But I'm not giving his flowers. People to know because there's a lot of people that came in later, later. Probably yeah, came yeah, yeah. By the plain jungle. That's not it. Yeah, nah, if you don't know that, man. Jungle yet, guys. Yeah, That's yeah. There wasn't even jungle. There wasn't no German based jungle back then, man. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, so we all was in the same station. We all DJed on a station called Phase One. That's where I sharpened my skills playing um, soul. I left the reggae scene. I jumped onto the soul thing, started to play the rear groove. I was on the rear groove scene with sound, with DJs like Mystery, Touch of Class. There was Mastermind, there was Trouble Funk, there, there was loads of um, Beat Freak, there was loads of Rap Attack, there was loads of these um, these hip-hop and funk DJs playing a bit of boogie and all that back in the day, you know? So I got into that kind of vibes, you know? And um, where was that then? Where was that? That was back in, that was back in like 80s, 84, 85 or something like that. 80, okay, so here's Brandon a I'm gonna play like your dad. Here we go. Oh, we go. Here we go. I'm I'm very very impressed with my son. Who taught my son how to mix records? Booker, who is you? Who is your guy that you either saw or picked up the art of blending? Not reggae, dance music, because you're leaving them. It's a different. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. I, yeah, um, Paul was one of them. Well, I've got to say, CJ McIntosh, man. CJ, he's another one who I kind of learned and saw who was mixing that. And this was back from the DMC days, you know, of hip hop and all that, you know what I mean? CJ McIntosh was a big influence on me playing, um, spinning and mixing and all that as well. Plus Paul Trouble Anderson. Thank you for clarifying that. Yes, everyone. Yeah. 
CJ's real name is Chris Mastash. Yeah, yeah. DMC champion. I think it was eighty-five or eighty-six when he before he eighty-six. Had, yeah. Before he had pump up the volume, pump up. Yeah, Mars, Mars, Mars. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you're coming from a generation of techniques, turntables, and needles. Right. Yeah, yeah. There was no such thing as a sync button. No, 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 no. Mixing, man. You have to mix on those decks, man. Uh, you know, techniques. You know, if you couldn't mix, man, it don't make sense. You're using the decks, those decks. You have to know what you're doing, you know. But, um, yeah, I came from that, that scene of mixing on the decks and all that techniques and all that. Pitch control, not touching the platters and that, you know. And the reggae sounds is more play the record, quick interlude into next one, right? It's not... No, but, well, most back in them days, they didn't really have two decks. So what they used to do is pick the record up, the MC would come on, say two words, say two words, say two words. Then they'll play the music, you know. And then when you finish the next, when you're gonna put on the next tune, the MC comes on again, says what he has to say, big up all the people in, blah blah blah, and then you put on the next tune, and that was it really. Some later on, later on, dance DJs started to use two decks, reggae DJs, R&B DJs, hip hop DJs, you know. And that's why I want everybody to understand because I had mm. just went to Carnival recently and I mm. got to experience that again where the, the selector had one turntable. There you go, there you go. And he's all his own sounds with a, an amazing yeah. system and it was and it would just directly stop, put another record on. Sound system culture, man. That's how they used to play it back in the day, you know? You got the MC talking. When you take the music off, the MC's talking, saying his bit, then you put your tune on. Then the MC starts blowing up the music. So for you, being mm. in that culture, yeah. and then all of a sudden seeing Cutmaster CJ yeah. transforming, yeah. it must have been like, yo, this is hot, right? Like you must- oh, Definitely, definitely. Hip hop was a big thing then, you know? DMC, the, all the new music that was coming out, Rock the Bells, um, a lot of the early LL Cool J stuff, Taylor Rock, all that stuff that was coming out early, you know, we was buying it up, buying it up, man, buying it up. You know, hip hop exploded. I've kind of, I'll be honest with you, I've jumped on more or less everything that came out, except drum and bass and jungle and all that, you know, but I jumped onto what I liked, you know, so it's kind of like advancing to different styles of music, you know, so but I love all the music. Eh? You have your big gold chain, like Run DMC and all that? No, 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 no. I bought a big gold chain when I went to New York, but I didn't, was wearing big gold chains like that. Nah, nah, nah. That wasn't me. That so wasn't you basically. Me, you know? I was mainly into the music vibes of it. So let's, let's say, for a better word, you're a chameleon. As the things happen, you just went with the times and changed and just. Yeah, yeah. Ever changed. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. But when is it? It was that new styles of music, innit? It was just new styles of music that I like. I still love hip hop now. I clip hip hop. But I only clip. Most of the hip hop I've got is mainly the old school stuff. I like some of the new stuff, the mumbling. I'm not really into that mumbling rap, but I like some of the new stuff. But I still play RB and hip hop. I'm still into a lot of hip hop anyway. And RB. Coming from that Curtis Blow, Run DMC, yeah. all, you know, EPMD, all those yeah. type of acts. Yeah. To yeah. bumbling hip hop, it's a difference. It does nah, hurt hip hop. No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. The beat statements sound the same as well. You see, and because I'm, I'm into making beats, I'm into the stuff that Just Blaze does, Premiere. I like all that kind of old school vibes as well. You know. So I've always been in. I've always liked hip hop 
from the day it started to not up till to now, but I still got a lot of classic hip hop tunes in my in my collection. Okay, Booker, what was the first house record you bought on this quest? The one that you first house record. The first house record I bought right was um Jack the Groove. Okay. Was that Steve? I'm sure that was Steve Phil Curly's Jack the Groove, was it? That's Chicago house track. Yeah, that was the first because I was still playing soul then. So the first tune, the first house tune I kind of bought from Chicago, I'm sure it was Jack the Groove. Okay. When do you start actually physically mixing Chicago house music? Um I need to think about this, you know. Um starting with the acid, the acid and the acid house raids in 88. That's when I really got into it. Yeah. That's when I really got into I got into the um the Tyree Cooper stuff, um a lot of the hip house stuff back in the early coming from Chicago and all that. You know, I was into a lot of Chicago house in the early eighties, you know, the acid house stuff and all that. And a lot of the Ralphie Rosario stuff as well, like used to hold me. All those stuff were big in the UK back in the eighties, you know, and um a diva and all that, all that early stuff. Then I did like some of the one acting stuff as well from Detroit. I was feeling some of that stuff because a lot of that stuff was playing in the acid days as well. Okay, Booker, in the UK. Yeah. Who brings you or invites you to the first house gig that you actually see this going on? And you go, ooh. No one invited me, you know. I just wanted to jump on the scene because it was a, it was a no one didn't invite me. I'm I'm telling oh, you. Yeah, like, you know something? You know, listen, this is how it went, right? This, talking just word of just word of mouth. Word of mouth. But the thing was as well, a lot of the DJs who I knew who was around me at that time jumped on the same thing. Fabio, Groove Rider, Jumping Jack Force, they all were playing house music. They all jumped on the acid house scene. That was the first thing that came out in London, in the UK. So we all jumped on that. Even Paul Trouble Anderson, I knew Paul before he was playing house music. So it's like word of mouth, everyone jumped on that scene, man. You know what I mean? When we're hearing about these acid waves and all that, we all started to go. You know, started to buy the music and then started to go to parties and that. I wasn't really getting no bookings on that on that scene at that time. You know, I think the only rave that I played at, at that time was an energy party, right? A marchioness, it was a marchioness dance. Some people died on a on the River Thames on a boat called the Marchioness. And this these promoters called Energy did their first party. Well, it wasn't their first party, but they did a party for the Marchioness, and I got a chance on that party so what was that experience like for you to play your first event with with dance rather scary man i'm not gonna lie about ten thousand people and this was in um i'm sure this was in chomford isn't it it was in the air dome man a big air dome man ten thousand people and that was scary and i didn't get a chance to play till about till about seven o'clock in the morning i was waiting my turn man and i and i'll tell you something i was playing you know what's playing after who i was playing before I was playing before a guy named Frankie Bones. You know Frankie Bones. Staten yeah. Island, New York, everybody. Right. Frankie yeah. Bones. And Mel was his manager. And they were going mad at me, telling me, I play shit, we want you off. Get off, get off, get off. And if it wasn't for my friends, them guys would have tried to get me off. I wasn't the best. I was just, it's my first time playing, you know? So, um, yeah, that's who I was playing on. That's who I was playing before. Okay, describe, if you can remember, yeah. The experience of walking up there and what was going on in front of you. Describe it all. Come on. 
bro, walking up there with my record box onto that stage and looking at 10,000, 15,000 people going crazy. It was, to be honest with you, brother, it was scary. But you know, this is what I wanted and this is what I wanted to do. So I just went in and played my first tune. And I'm still to this day, I can't remember the first tune I played. <laughs> um, but yeah. It was, it was, it was an experience and a half, man. You know, I've never played to that that many people before, but it was the best. It was okay. the best experience so in my life. Okay, so the record wasn't everybody went. <sighs> well, I'm trying to remember, man. I can't remember, man. It was a black because I had because I'm telling you, I didn't play the best set. I didn't play the best set because it was my first time playing, man. So I know I, I must have played tracks like "Come and Get My Loving Tonight." Um, um. He used to hold me. I can't remember, man. It was a blank that night, man. It was too much people. <laughs> they used to hold me when that bass line dropped. Dun, 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 dun. They went mad over that tune, man. That was one of the biggest tunes over there. Yeah. And that record was like, that was Ralphie it. Rosario, man. It was the one of the biggest. That was a big tune in the UK. So you talking about Mel from Champion that was Frankie's manager? I know Mel from Champion. I didn't know you Frankie's manager. Was that was that who you saw, Frankie Bones? Mel? No, 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 not Mel from Champion. It was another guy. This guy with this thick massages. I'm sure his name's Mel. He was managing. He was no, but he was managing. He was telling me to get off the stage, man. Get off the set and all that. You know what I mean? And I was pissed off about that still because it was my first gig. You know, I shouldn't even be saying this still, man. But I'm gonna tell you how it is, man. You started. I'm listen. I'm starting off new to this. So when I played, I'm like, eh? here's what I'm gonna ask one more time. Yeah. It's your first gig. It's okay to be pissed off. Mm. Tell us why. Why are you angry? Because this is going on in your mind. You're not saying anything because you're nervous there. You're probably no, no. no, I was nervous. I was nervous. I think a few of the tunes that I played, it didn't, it didn't rock the crowd. I tried to play the tunes that everybody knew. And it's my first experience playing house music to that many people. You know what I mean? So there was a couple of tunes that kind of made the crowd didn't really, they weren't really feeling it. Or maybe him, he wasn't feeling it really. You know, but um, my set was all right. I thought my set was all right. You know, it wasn't that bad. In reggae culture now, going back in time, yeah. did yeah. you have any experiences of that level playing for that amount of people in the reggae side? Yeah, first time you do when you start playing, you know what I mean? If you don't play good, they're going to tell you to get off the set. You know what I mean? Get the next selector in. You know, we always have that thing. I've never had that problem since. One time in the reggae, one time on the house scene, and that was it. Never again, mate. Never again. I'm fix up, look sharp. Right. Make sure you come come correct. Come correct. That's right, my bro. <laughs> definitely, definitely, definitely. So you your initiation to house music begins. Now yeah. you can take yeah, us on yeah. the journey because now that once that bug hits you, I'm assuming a lot of things start to go through your mind. You want to keep playing out. You want to keep, yeah, yeah, yeah. keep this thing yes. going. So take right. us on the journey. All right. Here we go then. All right. So I was still buying music. I was buying still a bit of R&B, but I was buying a lot of house music. So I used to go to Black Market Records where I had a good friend. Big shout out to Mickey D. Yeah, because he used to sell a lot of music, but he had, I was going to America to see my mum. I think it was about, no, let me explain this first. The way I got into this, right? I made a tune. I started producing tunes in about 1991 with a guy named Trevor Rose. So the first track that I did was with Azuli Records, 
that's Dave Petroni, Black Market. Dave Petroni used to work at Black Market Records. My mate Mickey B used to work at Black Market Records. So the first thing that I'd done was called Didn't I under the name Underground Mass, which was which done good in its first release and all that. First tune that kind of got signed in America by um, Big Beat Atlantic. Tony Humphreys was playing it on his on his WBLS show in New York, you know, and to me that was a big thing. So my mum was living in America. So what I was gonna do, I was gonna take her, I was gonna fly over and go and see her and that. So I hooked up with Mickey D, which Mickey D knew, Jerome Sydenham from Atlantic, and you know, Timmy Registered. So he hooked me up with Tim with um with Jerome. So when I flew to New York, I linked up, first person I linked up with. Jerome Sidman. I think this was about 93. I met, I met up with Jerome. Um, I went to Atlantic Records, Rockefeller Plaza, New York, and um, I met up with um, Jerome. I should have gave you a picture of that as well. But I met up with I met up with Jerome, and what did we do? We we hang out for we hang out for a couple of hours, and then he said what he's going to do is going to bring me to the shelter. He's going to link me up and bring me to the shelter at night. So. Instead of we going up there, like, at the party time, we went up there a bit early. So we went up there early, got to meet Merlin Bob, went for Atlantic as well, got to meet Timmy Registered. You know, I was hanging out for a bit before the club opened, went out to have something to eat. And um, and then I went to the Holy Grail of dance music, mate. I didn't go, I've never been to the Paradise Garage, but I went to the shelter. And that's the Holy Grail of house music, I'm telling you. Listening to Merlin Bob on a, fr- on a Friday night, Smashing some exclusive tunes, man. So now that we got that <clears throat> that piece right, yeah. And thank you, uh, some people correcting Tony Humphries was on Kiss. That's right, ninety eight point seven. Kiss, sorry, sorry, Kiss, sorry, 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 sorry. Yeah, it's all right. Thank you, Shane, for reminding Mister Booker. The production side of you. The bug begins because you're getting the DJing, and your first official London gig is with Bobby and Steve, correct? Bobby and Steve, yes. Big shouts to Bobby and Steve. They gave me my first shot at, um, at the Raw Club. I think this was 92 or something like that. You know, I played for them. Deer and Coliseum. They gave me my first PA as well with um, Stephen Granville. We did the first show at um, Coliseum. I want to make sure we get all that these points in because this is your story. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Who turned you on to becoming Booker T, the remixing producer? Who's that guy? Who showed you the ropes in the beginning? All right. Here we go. This is another story. One time I was in Catch a Groove. I was in Catch a Groove Records. Um, I used to go there all the time, buy my music and all that, hang out with... Um, Ricky, um, Jeremy Newell, um, um, uh, what was I supposed to hang out with him? Well, I hang out with a few people. You mean Abby, anyway. Abby? Yeah, Abby, Abby. Sorry, yeah, Abby, man. Flowers to Abby as well. You know, he was another one who kind of really looked after me and gave me a lot of tunes, good tunes to play out back in the day. Yeah, so it was Abby, Ricky, and Jeremy Newell, you know, and one day, Ricky was, because Ricky used to live upstairs from uh, Catch a Groove, he used to have a, a flat upstairs. So I went up there with him one day, him and um, Danny Buddha Morales. And when I went in the room, they they were doing something. So I put my head over and I said, what's that? And he said, oh, this is an MPC 60. 
So I said, what's it do? He says, ah, it makes some serious beats. So he started to play a beat on there, man, him and Danny. And I thought, what the fuck? So straight for swearing, I said, what's this? This beat is bad. Shout out to Ricky Morrison. He was the one who made me buy my first MPC 60 drum machine. Yeah. And I know how important that catch a groove apartment was above because that yeah, was man. Tony Humphrey was doing his master mixes, people hanging out in Ricky's apartment. Yeah, 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 yeah. Danny was up there, Benji was up there, Benji passed up there. So I went up there and um Ricky was playing all these beats, man, that he was doing, man. And I thought, this is heavy. I need to get one of these drum machines. I'm gonna go out and get one. I'm gonna get some money and get one. You know, and um, that time Ricky had the um, the MPC 60 Mark II. I only could afford the MPC 60 Mark One, so I just got the Mark One. You know, the older machine. But um, I started using it. I didn't really know how to use it at first, but I just read the manual a bit. And then I had a friend who knew about. It. I had an engineer friend. Well, Wait a second. Yeah. Wait a second. There was no YouTube. No internet. There was no YouTube, nothing like that, bro. There was no internet, no YouTube, or nothing. Straight up manual, or watch someone use the drum machine and try and pick up some tips there and there. You know, because I'm telling you something, man, it was a program and a half to use. It was a drum machine and a half to use. So I had a friend who was an engineer. He showed me a few pointers because he was using the MPC before and all that, and he's into hip hop. You know, so you know, MPCs are part of the hip hop scene and all that. So he, showed me a guy named Mark Franks, big shouts to Mark Franks as well. Top engineer guy, he showed me how to um, use the MPC 60, you know, so. Um, Booker, why did everybody have an MPC? What was the what was the reason for the MPC? The MPC had that sound, had that swing. Only two drum machines had that sound, that swing, SP1200 and the MPC 60. Yeah, it had that sound, that fat, 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 fat sound. Like used to come out. You had eight outputs at the back, two stereo outs and eight um, outputs at the back, separate outs. And when you hear that sound, it was heavy. And the swing, the swing was amazing, man. The swing was just swing. So you mean, yeah, right. So you mean that? Yeah. yeah. That swing, man, that swing was tight. You know, you couldn't get a better drum machine to get that swing than the MPC, man. You know, yeah. And from there, after, I started making tunes. I started doing my own thing, started to make tunes for um, for myself. And what I did was I started to go to different labels. Azuli was first. I did my first single with Azulis. Then I started to pump my tracks around to um, Slip and Slide, Junior Boys Old. I was going to all these different labels, future tracks, you know, trying to punt out my tunes. Here's something for you. Mm. Was it as easy and accessible to get to those people at those record labels at that time, or you had to work hard to find your way into those doors? You had to work hard, man. I was a hustler. I was a hustler, man. Me, anything I do, I just go into it full, you know what I mean? So it was hard, man, but, you know, you just get to know people. You know, the first, the second remix I did was for um, Vinyl Solution. That's how I got to meet, that's how I got to meet Phil Asher and... Um, Mark Ravenhill, because they used to work in the record shop downstairs. They had a record label upstairs and a record shop downstairs. And that was in um that was in Portobello Road. And that's how I met Phil Asher. And that was like early 90s. And uh, Mark Ravenhill as well. They used to work there. So um 
I was going to any record label that I that I knew that was putting out good music. I would go to a record label. I wouldn't even send my demos. I'd go there, knock the door, try and get to know them, you know, introduce myself. My name's Gary Booker. Um, got new music. That's what I did. And they would say to you, and they'll say, and I'll right? say, listen. Remember how, remember how shady they were too, right? Like, yeah, they were shady, man. But you just, I had to give from the gab, man. I, I got in with every. Believe me, I got in with everybody, even with the majors. After a little while, you know, what I mean, what I'm saying is. You know, if you want to get there, if you want to get into this thing here and you want to, and you take it serious, you'll find any means necessary to get in there, man. And I did that, you know. I went to every label, every label. And, you know, I had to prove myself still. Let me in. Let me in, yeah. I went to every label, man. And, you know, I'm not going to lie. Listen, two people turned me down and that, you know, but and yet they came back later on, you know. I've got to give thanks to Dave Pachoni to giving me my first shot, my first release on his label. You know, big shout to Dave Pachoni because he was the one who started it first for me. You know, yes, he was ahead of his time at the time. Yeah, I have to give him a lot of credit because he was paying attention to new records that were flying around. He would be grabbing stuff way before anybody else got their hands on it. But the, Dave had the link as well. He was in New York a lot as well. Remember, he was before he was in America before he came to Black Market, and so right. he was in between both. You know what I mean? So he had those links. Let me show you. Know, you. He's like, huh? Let me show you studio. See now, see that's that's a studio from back in the day. That's not the first studio. No, no, that's not. But he, what he's talking about, see how he has all the the, the hardware gear. Yeah, yeah. He's in full, full effect right there. And that's a lot of work using all that hardware gets for all of it to work together, all that MIDI to work together with the computer. It's a lot of work, man. Sometimes things are not in time, you know, but you've got, and the tapes as well, you've got to try and make it work. You know, it was really hard. But And that's Eddie Perez's studio, as a matter of fact, home studio. Yeah, I was going to say, because there's a Korg M1. If you look on the side there, there's a... You can see the piece of the SP twelve hundred yes. on the left hand side. Because the SP twelve hundred got the Akai one thousands. He's got yeah, the yeah, yeah. It wasn't even yeah, yeah. So from this story anyway. So I started doing a lot of stuff with different labels. Like um, after I did the track for um, Vinyl Solution, um, I did a remix called Living for the Moment. And um, Victor Simonelli, he was another one. Got to send big shouts to Victor Simonelli, who I really um, rate musically, you know. Um, he did the remix as well. So that made me happy that um, it's American on one side and a British on the other side, you know, especially Victor Simonelli. That was a big thing for me. Big shouts to Victor Simonelli. You know, big shouts to Vinyl Solution as well for giving me the hookup on that, you know. But um, yeah, so from there, I started doing stuff for Slip and Slide. Um, Junior Boys Own, Future Tracks, you know, and then the remixes. Then I started working with um, a guy named Ferdy Hunger. He used to run a label called Go Beat Records. Um, it was part of Polygram. He's another guy I've got to give shouts out to as well. I think he's the head of Sony now. But um, he gave me my first shot back in the first big remix I did was Gabriel, Forget About the World. And I had... Um, I'm not sure if I was the first to use him, but I had McKaylee, who plays for Spen. He's played for um, Joey Negro. He's played for Dave Lee. I think I, I'm not sure if I worked with him first, but we worked together on that track. You know, he played keys on that track. Um, for, um, I did an R&B mix and a house mix. 
forget about the world, go meet records. That was part of Polygram. That's what I'm saying. See, everybody has a beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even even Mikael. Mikaeli. Mikaeli. Great keyboard player. My God. But he's it's, it's, it's exceptional. Beast. A beast in the keys. Amazing, amazing keyboardist, man. Italian keyboard. Oh, look at you. know? Yeah, he's great. He's great I hope yeah. you I make it right. Don't worry. Yeah, and um after that. But hang well, on. Let me get on. Yeah, go on. Keep going. I was gonna say, and not too far down the road, he's not the first, but he's the second British producer, producer. in rhythm. So Strictly rhythm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I did my first track for Strictly, and shouts to um, Phil Cheeseman because Phil Cheeseman was the one who signed it when I was going to the Strictly office over, over, over West London. You know, he signed my track, a track called "Tearing Me Apart" in a Souls. You know what I did with my friend called Bradley Carroll. We both did that track together, and um, that was when I took my second trip back to New York to go to the Strictly Rhythm office. You know, and um, oh yeah, no, go ahead. Okay, right? Yeah, so yeah. um, yeah, so when I did that track, um, Phil Cheeseman was in America, so I, I told him I'm coming over. You know, what I mean, I'm just gonna go over and I'm gonna hang out for a bit. So I went to New York, um, went to the Strictly Rhythm office, met Gladys Cazaro, Roger Sanchez. I already knew Roger anyway, so Roger Sanchez was in there. Was shocked to see me in there, having a little chat with him. And that, you know, and Gladys said to me, listen, um, um, you're part of the team now. I want you to come somewhere with me tonight. And said, it's the underground network party, you know. So I said, wow, yeah, I'm definitely coming. So I was staying at my aunties in Queens. So they came over to Queens and picked me up. And then we left, we all left and went straight to um, um, underground network, where that was another party of... Bear top DJs, producers, everybody was there, but I couldn't believe it. I saw everybody. Louis was there. Kenny, Louis was playing. Kenny Todd, Armin Van Elden, Barbara Tucker. You know, I met Don Walsh there as well. They were running it. Don Walsh and Barbara Tucker was running. That's when I first got to meet Barbara Tucker as well. Um, at, um, at, um, underground, underground network, Sound Factory Bar. Yeah, so um. Yeah, that was the first time I met them. And, you know, that was a great party at that night. I heard that, that night was playing, I think it was just Louis. I think it was Louis and Ted Patterson playing down there that night. Or it could have been Louis and Tony Humphreys playing down there that night. But that night was, that was a, a great night, man. That night was on fire. So explain, you know, big night. explain that you New York, New York, the whole Sound Factory thing that you were mentioned to me and yeah. how that really came about for you. What changed you? Because each time you come to New York, it's like when I went to London, things change in your mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it did change me. It changed me how to make music as well. Because what I was hearing over there, man, I just wanted to make what I was hearing in New York. New York house that just kind of just made me want to make some some deep underground vibe. I think the New York house vibe was a bit more up, up tempo, more bumpier. It was different, man, to the Chicago house and that, you know what I mean? And when I went to New York, especially when I went to New York, all I wanted to do is kind of get that vibe, like the muscle at work vibes, the Todd Terry vibes. They were running things back then, you know what I mean? So that was the vibe for me at that time, you know what I mean? You know, that New York vibe, Lenny Fontana, you've got like, 
got the 95 Norths and all that, that kind of bumpy New York vibe, that was, that was for me, I was really into that vibe then. That was the energy for me at that time. So that made me change my style of making drum patterns and making my music. I was trying to more that, I'll be honest with you, I was trying to follow the Americans, to be honest. Why? Eh? Why? Because they were making the best music. That was the vibes then. You used it. We was trying to. We was trying to make what you was making, really. You know what I mean. But when you see what you was using to make, what you was using, what kind of drum machines you was using, and all that, then we started to kind of get it. You know what I mean. And that's when we started to make our sound kind of sound a bit more similar to yours. But New York House was the best house anyway. Me personally, that's what I thought. No disrespect to Chicago House, Detroit, no, anything. It's a different. You know vibe. what I mean. It was different, different vibes. But New York House had a more of a bumpier feel, more of an up-tempo, high-energy feel, you know what I mean? And more of a vocally cut-up kind of vibes, you know? So that's why I got into more of that New York House vibes. Okay. I can see why, and I can hear it, because I heard the change happen in your sound. It went from, yeah, yeah. from, a, from a real London sound. UK, UK sound to New York sound straight away, man. It was like- a lot of people... A lot of people, a lot of people thought I was American. When I did my first interview on Kiss, a lot of people thought I was American, which I was, I was quite shocked about that. You know, the first um, interview, no, well, the first interview I did was with Bobby and Steve on Kiss on their Friday night show. The first interview I ever did was with Bobby and Steve. Then I did another interview with um, Steve Jackson on his show on Kiss. That's when a lot of the, a lot of the fans and a lot of people, a lot of DJs out there thought I was American. You know, and that's a compliment. Looks, it's a compliment. There's nothing yeah. wrong. With it. You, you, you wanted to be. You wanted to yeah. have that American sound. You wanted to feel American. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. I didn't want. Listen, I didn't want to feel American, but I want that American sound. American sound was that's what was going on. You know what I mean? So, you know, for me to get into this music scene, that's what I try to do to um, make people recognize who I am. So I wanted to use that kind of American sound, the same kind of drum patterns, that bumpy sound, keyboard stabs and all that as well. And that's what I did, you know what I mean? I don't feel my way about it. Music's music, man. It's how you make it now. It's how you make it feel in your way, you know? I just did it my way. I took sounds here and there, but I did it Booker T style. Sure, and that's what makes you who you, your signature sound. So what's the first record that you would say takes you from that underground, underground, underground level to now the household name, Booker T? Well, on my track or someone else's track? Well, it could be reckon? both. You could say, this record did it for this, and that opened uh, up. I'll I'll, yeah, I'll tell you what, right? Um, the early Masters at Work tracks did it for me, telling you the truth. The early Todd Terry stuff did it for me. Um, Watcher's Point of View, the, the remix of that. Um, Masters at Works, early, um, we call it, um, Ride the Rhythm, Ride the Rhythm. That tune was, when I first heard that, man, that tune was just deep, deep underground house. You know, Ride the Rhythm, that was one of the biggest tunes for me as well. And um, um, there's loads of Masters at Work track. I was a big fan of Masters at Work, to be honest. I bought everything, anything that Masters at Work brought out, I bought Kenny Dot, Lee Baker. They're on my radar 24 hours, man. Them, them and Todd Terry. And MK as well. MK's a little was a bad boy back in the days as well with, with his with his production as well. I loved his production, you know. 95 North. 
Listen, most of American house music I was into, man. As long as it was bumpy and underground, that's that's the vibes I was feeling. You know, so I did my own thing and tried copy, paste, do what I did to 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 bring that Booker T vibes out there, you know. And that's important because you know it's like it's like painting. You get someone to muse, you see something and you wanna pull that image or some of it into what you're doing. Yeah. Make yeah, it yeah. and then caress it and make it book of teas. That's right. That's right. That's right. So what's the big record that all of a sudden book and everybody's come calling you? Like what's that record now that changes your life? Um when I did the remix on All Saints, I did the remix for London Records. That time I started to um well things started to get a bit different. I started to do a lot more major stuff. I started to do a lot of stuff for Ireland. I was working for Ireland. I was working for Sony. I was working for Arista. I was working for um, Atlantic, East West, Sony, you know what I mean? Universal. But the biggest tune that I did was sold like over 10 million was um, the remix of Never Ever Sold, um, Never Ever. All Saints, Never Ever. I, that sold about 10 million, man. I got two double platinum just for that, you know what I mean? And that was via Pete Tong. And then I did um, Quincy Jones, um, Stomp, Musa T did remixes. I did remixes for Warner Brothers. Then I started to do God's Property. Then I did Soul For Real for Universal. Um, many more I did. Hinder Hicks for Ireland. I was just remixing everybody. And then, then, then I had Craig Kelman come over from Big Beat Atlantic, come to check me, to um, ask me to do a remix for Jody Watley. Um, a track called Off The Hook, which Masters of Work did as well. You know, they did remixes, I did remixes, and I was um A&R through um, Johnny Dean in, in New York. I was getting a lot of remixes from New York as well, because I was doing stuff for Arista America as well. I did Monica, one of Monica's tracks in America as well. So um, then I went back to New York again and linked up with um, my old boy, Eddie Perez, Smack, one of my favorite keyboard producers, you know? And that's a whole other story. The Smack Boys, yeah, Eddie yeah, Perez yeah. and Mike Cameron, yeah, and that yeah, whole yeah. Jersey sound. So I'm presuming that the Jersey sound is starting to get all over you too. That's right, man. That's right. Smack mental intellism. Dave, those were the killer tunes back in the day, bro. You're laughing yourself because you know. <laughs> you know. Yeah, you came to my yeah you you came to my studio back I in the day. Well, the studio in the early nineties, every in month. the early nineties, you came. Jeremy Newell came to my studio as well. He brought Run Trent to my studio. It's, this is what I'm saying. A lot of people came from our little home studio in Brixton. So um, I had a few of the producers back in the day come over and all that. Um, Camacho came to my studio. Um, me and Camacho used to hang out in in Jersey as well. You know, um, Disciple came to my studio. I think you showed that picture already. Oh, you showed it yet? Let's get that picture. My, that was my home studio there. There's the MPC 60. The Mackie desk. That's me and Dino Disciple. I was at my home studio in Brixton at my girlfriend's, me and my girlfriend's house. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, in the heart of Brixton, man. So Camacho came there. Ron Trent came there. You know, we did a track there. I don't even know where that track is. And he, Ron Trent came there with Jerry, with Jeremy Newell as well. Big shouts to Jeremy Newell and Ron Trent. Yeah, they, uh, they both came, yeah, both came to my house. And big shouts to um 
Rest in heavenly peace, DJ Camacho, you know, another good friend of mine, really, a really good guy. You know, when I came to when I came to New York as well, he invited me to his house, stayed at his house with his family and all that, and they really looked after me, treated me really good. Oh you yeah, know, so, um, yeah. was good, Cookie. Yeah, yeah, Cookie, man. Yeah, man. Beautiful lady, yeah, beautiful kids and all that, and they're really nice people, you know. Really made me feel comfortable and made me feel at home. You know, we did a few beats in his in his basement, downstairs in his basement in New Jersey, you know. So um yeah, hung out with him for a bit. Then I went to Eddie, did some I did some I was I was uh, managed by Big Life as well. So what I did I had a project and um I wanted to do it with Smack and all ah, that. So let's, that yeah, let's get that yeah. let's get that out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so um well, let me clean my mouth. Let me get some water. Let me get some water quick, yeah. What's it? Um, everybody who joined Booker's down memory lane, incredible. His let him have some water. I'll bring him back up. This is what it takes, people, to make it. Listen to Booker carefully. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I started. I was just started to get managed. Well, I was managed by Tim Blacksmith. Big shout out to Tim Blacksmith. Love you, bruv. You know what I mean? Because he did a lot for me as well. You know what I mean? Helped me out um, managing me and getting me all those big remixes, the remixes from the All Saints, the Busy's Parties, the brand new heavies and all that. Big shout out to Tim Blacksmith, Stella Songs and Danny D. Yeah, but then after I was managed by um, Jazz Summers, Big Life Records. So they wanted me to do a project and all that. You know, so um, they said who I wanted to work with. So I said, um, I want to work with um, Eddie Perez, Smack and all that. So, you know, I said, you got the budget, give me the budget and I'll fly, I'll fly over to New York and we'll go to Eddie Perez's studio and do this track. So um, gave me a, gave me some money. So took a flight, flew over to Jersey, linked up with Eddie. Who did I buck when I got there? Tim Deluxe and Omar R.I.P. Big shouts to Tim Deluxe, big shouts to R.I.P. Um, Omar as well. So we all was hanging out at Eddie Perez's studio and all that. And I, um, we started to do some, some tracks. Together, all, I think all three of us. And then after that... I got a question for you. Yeah. So when you get to go into Eddie Perez's place... Mm. And Smack Smack Productions is now they're mixing a lot of stuff back then. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. You gotta you got to see the inside of what was going on. What did you learn when you got there? Was it what you thought the Smack thing was, or was it different? Well, I tell you, the truth, it was different, man. It's like a machine, man. They were knocking out tunes like like mad. They were knocking tunes out like two, three tunes a day. Eddie was on his game man those guys were on their on their game but you know i gotta give it to eddie eddie Perez was the main man who was doing a lot of a lot of music keyboard stuff and all that and i like eddie's style of keyboards but he had this style that you know he's got his he's got his own style of keyboards i i loved it i loved it so you know i ended up doing three tracks with him in um at his studio and that you know we finished them off i think i've still got them out even we i even put them out in the end you know what I mean? We didn't even put them out in the end, man. But I'm still sitting on them, and I might even put them out. You know? But um, I got Eddie Perez to play on a few tracks for me when he came to London. He played on the Soul to Soul Like Here remix I did for Ireland. And he played on um, I Can See the Light, the track that I signed to um, Slip and Slide, Slip and Slide Records. 
back in the back in the nineties. Are you, you know? sorry? Are you sorry for not having your own record label and releasing your own productions? Or yeah, man, yeah, definitely, Explain definitely, that. definitely, definitely. Bro, I'll be honest with you. I got caught up in the remix game and the production game. I didn't really think about starting a label, you know, which I should have done. If I started a label back in the nineties, it would have been different. Now things would have been so much different, man. I would have had a, a massive catalog of music. But what I concentrated on more was my DJing and um, studio. I was in the studio all the time. I'm, I'm self-taught as well. I didn't go to any studio school to learn how to use a sampler, use a drum machine. I just read manuals and watched what other people did and just blagged my way. I blagged it most of the way. You know what I mean? But I still got to learn how to use this, these equipment. Free 2000, free, um, free 2000 sampler, 3000 MPC drum machine, all the Juno stuff and all that. I'm not the greatest keyboard, so I can play a couple of chords and all that, but I can program. I could, I, I'm good at programming and making beats and all that. And I was, but I'm self-taught. I didn't go to no school to learn anything. I just taught, I just taught myself. Can you tell some of the people out there with some of the record deals, because you didn't do too many deals. You did a lot of remixing. Yeah. yeah. Mm. What those deals were like in back in the day with the contract stuff. <sighs> what did you do? Listen, the deals were big. Listen, I got a lot of... What happened is I did a lot of production um, for labels as well, but I did a lot for independent. And what I should have done, I should have cut down on the remixing. I jumped on the remix tip and I was doing a lot of remixes and getting a lot of money and buying a lot of equipment. So I didn't see... I didn't really see till later on about releasing tracks on majors. I just saw just getting remix money and getting remixes, getting my name out there, people getting to know who I am. If I'm working on the majors and all that, my name will go out there. And it did. But the thing was as well, another thing as well, you know, most of your tunes and all that, they usually blow up if you sign them to independent. Most major labels wouldn't, wouldn't just invest in a tune like that unless they knew it was going to blow up. That's the main thing. Majors that at that time they wouldn't invest in something unless they knew it was going to blow up. Right, uh, they had, when it, that's right. They had to be in it, and and it had to be really, really showing at this. Well, thing. that's right, that's right. That's why Ricky got that big deal with um Salsa Nugget. You know, Ricky was on it, mate. Ricky was on it. I saw. I was there the day he brought the Salsa Nugget to to Garage City, at Coliseum. That night he brought that tune. He said, "I've got this tune, book. I've got this tune, Bobby. I've got this tune. It's a killer tune. We just finished this tune." And from the first time I heard it, I knew it was going to get signed. But, you even, know, but um, even with I did Ricky, sign a deal still. Even, I, with I did. Story, even with Ricky's story, Ricky said yeah. the first deals were... They were down there, man. But, you know, listen, we, I was just glad to get on labels. I went, listen, I went to labels in New York. Right? I went to Cutting Records. I checked Aldo and them guys. Right? I went to some, some, some ghetto, dangerous area it where cuttings is where there's some cutthroat Spanish Puerto Rican boys are and all that. Aldo was shocked when I came there. Aldo said, Man, how you managed to come down here, man? But I've got cousins, I've got loads of cousins in New York, I've got cousins in Queens, I've got cousins in Brooklyn and all that. And they go all over the place, man. So I went down there, tried to shop a couple of my music to um cutting records. And really and truly, I wanted to get most of my tunes on American labels first. So if they if they see it back in London. They say, shit, Booker's got a tune out and cut him, man, or strictly and all that. We need to look at this guy a bit more carefully, you know what I mean? 
And that's what Ricky did as well. Most of us did that. We most we shot a lot of our tunes here and we shot the tunes in America as well. Did you have better success with the American labels or, or the UK in the end? Both, both, man. They both helped. They both helped. If you had a tune on Strictly, people, if you had a tune, if a British guy had a tune on Strictly, back in them days when you had Deep Inside and um, all these big tunes by Eric Morello, Louis Vega, Kenny Dope, George Murray and all that, people's looking at you in London and saying, yeah. You know, because Strictly was like a, Strictly was like a major, independent major label for house music at that time. What defected were, what defected are now? That used to be Strictly back in the day. You know, everybody wanted to put their tunes out. Well, how important was Gladys Pizarro and getting her attention on your record? Who, those that don't know, Gladys Pizarro was the A and R Yeah, she was important, very important. She was the one who signed most of those tracks. You know, even though my track wasn't signed by her, it was signed by it was signed by Phil, but it still had to go through her. She had to to say, yeah, if she likes the tune, they'll sign it, and she liked it. You know, and that's what I, for me personally, when I knew she liked it and I knew they were signing it, I'm saying I'm going to New York, man. I'm, go, I'm going straight to New York. I'm going straight to Strictly with my office. I'm going to hang out with everybody, you know, get everybody to get to know me. This is what I do. That's what I do. I've always done it. Even in London, you know, I moved with all the record labels. I've been to every record label. I know Dummo from Dummo was the work at Cool Tempo. You know, I know Dummo from Dummo is the work at Cool Tempo, Trevor Nelson. I did remixes for Cool Tempo as well. I, I, I did a track called um, Stay, Misha Paris. Well, I did that for Cool Tempo. And here's another story after as well. I did a track called Love Shine and I gave it to DJ Disciple. So DJ Disciple was playing this tune in New York. Right? And who did he, who did he give this tune to? This Love Shine. He gave it to um, Roger Sanchez. So Roger Chanches is banging out the shoe, banging out the shoe, banging out the shoe, banging out the shoe, banging out the shoe. In New York, who hears this tune? Simon Dunmore, AMPM Records. So I got a call from Disciple saying, yeah, man, books, you're going to get a call, you know, from you. Dunmore, Dunmore, Dunmore's going to, Simon Dunmore's going to follow me. I think he loves your track, he loves your track. I said, how did he hear that then? He said, oh, I gave it to Roger Sanchez. Roger Sanchez was playing it. I said, okay, cool. In about 20 minutes, I got a call from Dunmore saying, uh, um, I like your track. Was it you that done it? I said, yeah. Um, can we have a meeting? Come to the office. And I went up to the office, went up to AMPM. And what did Simon Dunmore say when he got there? He said, hello, Mr. Booker T. I like your track. No, he didn't. He said, um, he said, um, he asked me about the track, who produced the track. I told him that it was me, you know. Dumbo knew who I was anyway, you know what I mean? And um, Yeah, he was probably. He, he said he liked the track. Bro, he was, if, trust me. If everybody's playing your tracks, Dumbo's a DJ first. Dumbo, yeah, he knows, he knows, he knows. Yeah, he's on it. So yeah. was the deal worth doing with AMPM? <sighs> it was It was let's all right, deal. I'm not going to listen. Come on, let's be real. <laughs> Listen, it was an all right deal. I'm not gonna, I'm not, I'm not gonna knock Dunmore. You know, what I mean, he's a good guy. Give big shouts out to Simon as well because he's done a lot for the scene. You know, and I know that guy, for, I know that man for years. But um, it was a decent deal, man. It was a free single deal. You know, option of an album. If the first single done good, you know, what I mean, we get more money on top. We got a certain a good amount of money still, and it had to split between three people because it was me, another guy called Bradley Carroll, and the artist who was singing. 
on the on the tracks as well. So um, the deal was reasonable, man. It was all right. There's a free single option the album, you know. So if the single, any of the singles start to block, then we can we not go, we can negotiate for this album, you know. But um, we did the first single. We got they got Roger Sanchez. I did the mixes. I did the mixes at Swan Yard Studios. Then we went to another studio to do the, to do some more mixes. Roger Sanchez came in to do the mixes as well. Was in the studio with Roger Sanchez at the time and he was doing the mix as well. And um, pardon, sorry. And um, we got those mixes done. And then Domo said he was going to get um Joe T. Vanelli from Italy to do mixes as well. You know, and that was it. You know, release a single. I'm not going to tell you where it went though. <laughs> And then you got a big negative on the contract, which is like how much was spent to make that record happen. You know, people don't realize that amount of money that's now this record's into. Yeah, you about do. 40000 by the time they're done with all the remixes. <laughs> well, uh, well, that's it, you know. But you, could, you know, the thing was, though, we got a good amount of money. You know what I mean? So really, truly, no one, no one lost. Simon didn't lose. He, well, he might have lost a bit, you know what I mean? But he, he made back his money, man. He knew what he was doing to make back his money. I didn't lose, you know? You know, I just think oh, he just... Of course, of course. You, know, you know, that's part of it. That's part of the course. You One know? thing about Dunmore, man, he's not going to overspend something, you know what I mean? He's always going to be, like, a bit more careful on his spending. That's why he's got where he is to now. He's actually no. he said he's got he has the most severest part of OCD. He must control everything. He does. He's in control of everything because we got we was late for a photo shoot and he got pissed off. He was mad because he was in the studio. Because this is what I'm saying as well. I'm just on a remix, remix, remix. We was in studios. We was in the studio like five days a week, in the night, all night, and all that. Sometimes I'm studio from from like midday till the next day. You know, just trying to just get my name out there. You know, so we was meant to be at a future shoot. We, we got to the future shoot about 45 minutes late, just coming from the studio session. Me and my mate, Simon was going mad. He was getting pissed off, kicking the, kicking the thing and going, what's wrong with you? Don't you see I'm making money? <laughs> sorry about the screen, sorry about the screen. That's all right, no, that's yeah. okay. Yeah. No, but he was, listen, he wasn't like, but he's spending his money, you know what I mean? We was late for a photo shoot. We was meant to be at a photo shoot on time. We got there 45 minutes late. Who was doing remixes for someone else? <laughs> you know, but um, yeah, man, that's how it goes, though, man. You know what I mean? But um, we got dropped on the first single. You know, the first single didn't go top forty. You know, but I was cool about it. I, I, it didn't bother me. You know what I mean? It really didn't bother me. It just was an experience. You know, for me, it was an experience working with him. You know, he put his heart and soul into the project as well. I can't say he didn't. You know what I mean? Guys, studios, we went back in to redo stuff. You know what I mean? To make it sound better, you know, he, he proper invested in us. So I can't look him. It didn't go top 40. He went about number 60 in the pop charts or something like that, in the main charts. It didn't go, it didn't go top 40, man. So he Sorry, buddy. If you don't have a top 40 record, it's yeah, going to yeah. come back with the follow-up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right, man. There's no, there's no follow-up, mate. You know, there's no follow-up. <laughs> there's no follow-up, you know. But, you know, you know something? It was no hard feelings, man. I still kept on doing what I was doing. And later on, Dunmore called me again, come here, oh, I need you to do a remix for me. Who do you want me to remix? Sounds of Blackness. There Pressure. We nice. There we go. There we go. Start again. You know, so Dunmore gave me all the parts. I went in and damaged that tune, man, the pressure. 
but um, AMPM. I think I did mixes. They put the original Frankie Knuckles mixes on there. Um, Jazz and Groove was on mixes as well. It's a few of us on, on the mixes, you know what I mean? But that was a great track to, to remix. You know, yeah. how long did this remixing game for you stay at the height it did till it started to... In the 90s, man, it was all from... It was all from 90, say about 93, all the way up to about 99, 99, 2000. That's when it was, it was, it was the hype for me. 90, yeah, 93. From 93 to 2000, I did loads of major work and all that, but the game changed, you know what I mean? MP3s, webs and all that came in, getting less money. You know, majors don't want to don't want to work with too much of the house DJs no more, especially the soulful house DJs. You know, the game that, music was changing. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's where I'm going to ask you when the music changed and everything starts. Because also the monies that was being passed around was not there anymore. No, it wasn't there. None of that was there. All that big money thing has gone out the window now, mate. Right. So what gone did you start to do? at that stage to stay alive? DJ, man. DJ. I was still doing mixes, but I was doing a lot of stuff for independence. I was still DJing a lot anyway. I was playing. I played. I played. I was playing in LA. I played in San Francisco. I was playing in Italy a lot. You know, um, that's how I got to meet Terry Hunt. I got to meet Terry Hunt uh, and the whole of the music plant crew in Italy when I was playing for um, Maurizio. I played for Maurizio Clemente. And he had Danny Tenaglia there. I got to meet Danny Tenaglia. That's when I first met Byron Stingley in Italy as well. I met Byron. It was Byron, 10 City Crew, and it was a music plant crew. That was Terry Hunter, Georgie Pulji, Maurice Joshua, and um, who else was with them? Some other guys with them. I can't remember who they were, but they were the main guys who I met, and we all hanged out together. That was the first time I met them when I went to Italy, you know, because we was all there for a music conference. And I went over there with Dave, Dave Pachoni to play. Yeah, if I remember correctly, I think Maurizio Clemente used to put them on, right? The city. Yeah, that's right, Maurizio. Yeah, that's right, Maurizio Clemente. Yeah, absolutely. So you, absolutely. so you saw, you saw that what you began with is what basically kept you alive, the DJ. Yeah, 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 yeah. The DJing kept me, kept me functioning. I'm still making music. I'm always going to be making music, no matter what. But things just went downhill for a little while, you know. Um, didn't go downhill. It's just that I wasn't putting up as much music that I used to put out back in the day. And the remixes weren't coming in as they used to, you know? And most of that reason why is because everything started to go online, you know? Um, record labels weren't paying enough money now to do remixes as well. And the music started to change. It started to get, music started to get a bit harder. But they were going for more, those harder DJs doing more tribal house and all that, you know? And the independent labels really, you know, it's like, it wasn't that really much going on, really. Things just changed, man. As soon as the MP3 thing started to land and all that, things just got different, man. Well, you know yeah. what they said? This is the um, cliche. Why go out and buy the milk if I have the cow right in my backyard? Think about that. Why would you go buy records now when you could download for free? No. Well, yeah, that's that's right. That's right. A lot of people downloading music for free. We, I was still buying my music and all that. We still had to go out and buy music. But then it started to get into this thing that everyone's getting CDs now. CDs, getting promo CDs. 
I still get my promos all the time because I was getting so much tune sent to me, you know what I mean? But then it started to go into the CD thing. Everyone's getting promo CDs and all that. But everything went back to independent anyway. Most most producers back then from the 2000s weren't doing a lot of major stuff again. You know what I mean? A lot of us wasn't. A lot of us weren't getting all them big remixes again. Not even masters at work. No, I know. You know? Because now a gentleman named David Guetta changes the game. Mm. With his sound, and then you have Swedish House mm. Mafia, you know, and this is yeah, all yeah, 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 yeah. So, bit know, more commercial, a bit more commercial house, kind of, you know. So our music went real underground to a point yeah. where it was non-existent, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. The clubs went back underground. Anything went back underground, mate. You know, clubs were going back to underground kind of vibes. You know, what I mean, back to the old school kind of vibes that it was back in the day. You know, so um, yeah, things change, man. After a little while, you know. But you have to you have to go with the flow and flood of the technology. I'm always about technology, man. I'm new for the times, you know what I mean? I'm I don't really like to be stuck in the times. I like to move with everything. What's moving sure. Right you don't know what's gonna happen. You just that's right. You know, you're on that it's like this, everyone. You're on the wave and you're on your surfboard and you're going and mm -hmm. going and going and going and going. And then all of a sudden the wave starts to drop. You're still up there trying to keep your head above water right but eventually as it drops you gotta join the party yeah and some people couldn't sustain staying in this game anymore because there was just no game to be had yeah but me personally i think it's the love you have to love this thing still for you to stay in the game you have to love it you know listen i've got to send big shout outs to the uk garage massive as well you know what i mean if it wasn't for them they kept my music alive a production alive. I've got to send shout-outs to the Carl Browns, the Spoonies, all these guys that we've been playing my music, the Jeremy Sylvester's, the Grants, all these guys in the Matt Jams. I've got to give all them guys shouts in the UK because they supported my music and they all played my music back in the day, you know, and that's what it helped me to still be where I am today, to know that, you know, I can still do this. People love what I do, you know what I mean? So I've got to give shout-outs to the UK, all the UK DJs, all the UK people who support me, enough respect, love you like food, man. You know what I mean? I'm really grateful for that support and I'm humble as well. You know, if it wasn't for them, I won't be where I, I wouldn't be where I am today. That's you know? true. That is so, so true. Without the buying, without the people supporting us, there'd be no reason for us to step out of our house. Yeah. Be part of their thing. Yeah. Let's talk about something very important. You know, I know yeah. you're very proud of. Yeah. The road, to Grammy nomination, mm. you have, let's put it like this, you carved your way into the history books of dance music, but eventually you make your way into the overground because to do the Grammy, it's a big, it's a big honor. Yeah. It's what was that? Honor, like? man. What record was it that got you there to achieve? Soul it? to soul, soul to soul, soul to soul, back to life, you know? I got to send a big shout out to Jazzy because he's another one who was who um who was there when I first came to the studio and asked him if I could do some work for him and that. You know, Jazzy has always had my back. I've got to show him big love and all the Soul to Soul crew, HQ, you know, Dada, all them guys have helped me in my career. You know, I used to have a studio in their premises in, in the Soul to Soul building as well. I had a little setup in Soul to Soul building. But you know, um, 
being nominated for Grammy is overwhelming, man. It was so overwhelming and just meant for me that I'm glad that I stuck to what I'm doing. I love making music. Even if I'm not making no money, I'm still going to be making music because I love doing it. It's something I just love doing, you know? And if I stopped, like a lot of producers stopped back in the day, I would never have been nominated. So um, I'm really grateful for this, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, I'm thankful, you know, I'm humble, you know, and um, got to send a big ass shout out to Jazzy as well for hooking this back to life thing up, you know? Because we sat down and spoke about it. But did you have to be a Grammy member to to be nominated, or this was they did no that. some no. What happened was, um, there's a guy. What's his name again? Did you know? I forgot his name. It'll come to me in a minute. There's someone who's a member of the Grammys said to me that ah, oh, this track here, Soul to Soul, it's a big tune. It's a big tune. You know, I really love it. I reckon it can get nominated for a Grammys and that. You know, and. I just kind of fobbed it off, kind of thinking, oh, no, no, I don't know if this is going to work, you know. But he said, no, man, he, you know, he's a member and all that. Let me, let me, let me um, submit it to them and all that. You know, and I told Jazzy about it, you know, Jazzy kind of just excused it as well kind of thing. But then after I thought about it and I thought, no, this guy's, this guy's really into what, what we've done and what I've done, you know I mean? He's really supporting this tune. So he did the right thing he did. He submitted it. He took all the details and everything, got all the details from Jazzy, and he submitted it to um, he submitted it to the Grammys and all that. And then a couple of months later, got got nominated. Woo. Got nominated. You know, yeah, that was the best thing for me, man. I was, you know, I was, I was really happy. You know, what I mean, and I'm trying to remember the guy's name now. You know, I've got my mind like a sieve at the moment, bro. I can't remember this guy's but you name. Thing. You're doing a really good thing. You remembered a lot of good things. Yeah, a well, big shout out to my bro who got it. So who sub who submitted it to the Grammys. Yeah, I forgot you, man. But big love to you anyway. If you're here watching, you know, I mean, big oh, love to you, man. Thank you. Person that submitted it for Boca, let us know. Send He'll hit you up. He'll hit you up. He'll hit you up, man. He'll hit you up. Someone will tell you in a minute. Boca, did you Someone like change you. after the Grammy nomination? Pardon? Did you like uh, Yeah, life? kind of, kind of, you know. What it did for me got me more gigs, really, you know what I mean? Never got me much major remixes, you know. Got a few remixes there, a few remixes. My prices are shot up, I'm not going to lie. Money's gone up and all that. But um, it wasn't even, it's not even about the money, man. I just love doing this. This is something I love doing, you know. I've had loads of breakup with relationships because of this, man. I've put this work before a lot of people, you know what I mean? And, um... I'm sorry for everything I've done to all the ladies. I put my music before them. It wasn't wasn't intentional, you know. But um, I do love this. But um, yeah, yeah. Um, the Grammys now, man. I'm just so um overwhelmed by it and all that. And and it's it's really good that so much people supported me from America. A lot of American DJs and producers really gave me a lot of props and a lot of British and a lot of um people from all around Europe. Just gave me props you knew me and all that and i'm really grateful for that you know moving forward the mm. next 10 20 years in front of you what do you predict for yourself what do you think you're gonna be oh, doing the same thing man making music djing for a bit you know and um concentrating on more 
producing artists and I've got a lot of projects going on anyway at the moment, you know. I've got an album, I'm doing my album at the moment, you know, which people's going to see that next year. And that's going to be different. It's going to be a mixture of everything. I've done a few remixes here for a few people here and there, you know. A lot of people's hitting me up for mixes at the moment. I'm just going to be continuing doing the same thing, man, DJing. I'm grateful, you know. When it's time for me to buy the music scene, I'll buy it gracefully, like Simon Dunmore. Do you, you know, still feel your cutting edge, personally? Do I feel it from a cutting edge still, yeah? Kind of, kind of, kind of, you know? Everyone says they know my style now, man. I'm trying to change it up a little bit, you know? But I'm listening to what's going on out there as well. There's loads of good music coming out there, especially on the Afro house scene, the Amma Piano, you know, and um, the Deep House. There's a lot of good stuff coming out. Even some of the up-tempo house as well. There's loads of good music coming out, man. So people just trying to mix and blend, you know? Maybe mixing a bit of Detroit house with Chicago house. You know, a lot of that old school stuff are coming back as well. So, um, yeah, man, you know, music's here, man. I'm just, I'm just lapping it up and loving it, man. I'm just doing what I love doing. You know, I don't know how long I'm going to do it for. As long as I'm living, I'm going to be still just doing the same thing. This is all yeah. I know. I don't know nothing else, bro. Well, that was the other question I was going to ask you. Yeah. If you didn't do this, what would you have been doing your whole life right now? I might have been a bit of a chef, chef. I used to be a chef back in the day. Ah. <laughs> I used to be a chef, yeah. Yeah, I used to be a chef, man, you know. And um, I got sick and tired of cooking, man. Them hot kitchens and all that, man. Did my head in. But um, yeah, what I think that's... that. that what kind, of food? what kind of food do you specialize Italian food, doing Italian food, you know, all all different kind of food, man. It wasn't for me, you know. I did it I did it for a few years. I used to work at this hotel in Sloan Square called the Cartagels Hotel, you know, and Army and Navy. I did that when I was young, but it wasn't for me, man. I just got into the music thing. And when I got into the music, I never, ever looked back. I never, ever said I'm going to give up because I don't give up. I do, I do what I do, you know. What's the story with the Kings of Soul label? I mean, Liquid Deep. The Kings of Soul is my little. Kings of Soul is like, you know, you got Masters at Work. Kings of Soul are like, that's me. That's my little other production name I use, you know. Got Inner Souls. I've got Kings of Soul. I've got Underground Mass, you know. But um, but a lot of stuff was done by Booker T. Yeah, all, it's all it's all Booker T. I don't need Booker T. Umbrella, yeah. And then I've got the label, then I've got the, the label Liquid Deep, which I've got a few tracks coming. I've got a couple of tracks with Lee Wilson coming. I've got a few more cuts that I've done. I've done about three songs with Kenny Bogan, four songs with Kenny Bogan right now. So there's two that's, he's got for his label, and I've got two more for my label. I've got a few songs with Lee Wilson as well. Are you still working the same way with bringing vocalists in, or are you doing everything over Skype and stuff? Well, what I do is more time I send them the beat. If I can get them, what I, what I usually do, I can't record here, but I've got a mate who's got a, a great setup. So if any artists are here that I want to work with, if they've got the time, we'll try and link up, sort something out, and I'll bring them to the studio so I can work there. I prefer to work with artists direct instead of giving them something for them to work over by themselves, you know? So if I send something to Kenny, they'll do it in their studio in New York and do what they do. I don't really like working like that. I like to be there. So if I hear something that I can change a bit or, you know, something that make it sound a bit better, you know, just put my little two pence in and that, you know, but um, most of the time, that's how we're doing it now. Technology, again, back in the day, did we, what did we used to do? We used to post our deaths. Take about five days, six days to get to you. You know what I mean? Now you say, send me a tune and get it in 10 minutes. Not even. Three seconds. Yeah. <laughs> Three seconds. <to> see. <laughs> like, 
Whenever it yeah, takes uploaded 40 seconds to get across, within like one minute, you have a new song right in your hands. Like, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You still doing yeah. stuff the same way like you did in the 90s, or you cut or you changed your production skills now? I changed, my, changed it, changed it, man. Most of the stuff now I do, I haven't got no more samplers and all that stuff. Everything's done in the box now, you know what I mean? I, um, I've got a powerful Mac and all that. So, you know, I've got, I've got like an SSL setup control, I've got SSL setup as well. So, you know, most of everything I do, it's all in the box. You know, so when it goes in that, when I go in that box, everything that happens there goes in that box. Master, mix, and everything in the box. Save timing. Are you mixing eh? all your own stuff too? You've doing the final mix. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do most of the mixing. If I, if I, if there's something that's a bit, a bit complex for me, I'll get one of my mates to come around who I know is good, and he'll help me out and all that. But most of the stuff, because it's independent, most of the stuff I do it myself. You know. If it was like for if it was like for majors now or something like that, a bit different, more or less we'll just hire a bigger studio and that, you know what I mean? But in this day and age, man, you can't tell it if all right, let me tell you something. That Grammy's tune was mixed in my house, right? Back to life was mixed here. Gram back to life was mixed on this, mate. Right? It wasn't mastered. I didn't master it, but I mixed that here. So it shows you, you know what I mean? Where you know you can do, you can, you don't need a big studio nowadays to do most of your stuff. You might need a big studio if you've got a, if you've got band and musicians and all that stuff there. But if you're doing a lot of stuff digitally, you don't really need a big studio. So you are comfortable with you mixing your own stuff, just like you used to do in the nineties? Yeah, man. That's how I learned. To, that's how I learned. I, I didn't have no one else to do it. The only time, the, oh, listen, the only time I didn't mix my own stuff is when I was using the SSL decks, when I was using Swan Yard, when I was working at, when I was working at all the Matrix studios, right, Maison Rouge, um, Metropolis, when I worked at um, Sam West and all that, I didn't do the engineer. I, I, had a, I had a friend called Mark Franks. He's one of the top engineers in London, right? Any, any big thing I'm doing, He's the man I'm gonna to call to come in and engineer and mix down all those big discs, you know. But um, like independent stuff, I just do it at my, I just do it by myself, man, at home. Incredible. Booker, did we miss yeah. anything? I don't think we missed anything. I think you told it and laid it all out. Have I? Have I? I think I you told you about my DJ. I haven't told you about my DJ in Italy with um, Claudio Coccoluto and them guys, and you can tell us linking up with linking up with DJ Ralph. Yeah, Ivan Yakabuchi and them guys. I used to play in Italy all the time, man. I used to, I played in, I played all over Italy. I love Italy, man. Italy was the place to go as well. Me, Paul, Bobby and Steve, Ricky, we all was flying out there every month. I've got to send a big shout. Yes, this is another thing as well. I've got a, another guy who inspired me to make house music as well. I've got to give him up to Frankie Fonset, man. Frankie Fonset is another man who inspired me big time on the house scene making house music gotta give him his flowers because he's been there from from day one man he was another one who inspired me to make house music him cj mcintosh is another one who inspired me to make house music i could give big props to um cj because he's done a lot of things that a lot of us ain't done i don't know if you if you've interviewed him yet but you need to interview him man you know because he's worked yeah as in chris mcintosh Chris McIntosh. I want to get him, but I don't know. Listen, listen man, get him, man. He's gonna come. He'll come in there, man. He's worked at. He's worked at. He's worked at Basic in New York with Masters. You know what I mean? He's he's worked at a lot of studios. You know, we both worked at Arm um, West together. You know, and that's when I knew I was on the next level. When I was working in the same studio with CJ, 
that's when I knew I was on the next level. You know what I mean? Because Samus is not like a little studio, it's a big, big, big studio, man. You know what I mean? Um, 48 track systems in there and all that. CJ was upstairs, I was downstairs using, we both was in different studios, you know? And um, Tell people how much it costed per day to have that room under your, to lock 1500 a day, mate. And back in them days, that was a lot of money. 1500 a day, 1000 to 1500 a day. That's an engineer, tape up, a boy who, who does the tape machine and all that. You know, it was costing 1500 pounds a day, man. So you had to make sure you knock out your tunes or get all your ideas done. You have to make sure you get all your ideas done before you hit that studio to mix down or whatever you're going to do or to add extra stuff in there because it wasn't cheap, man. And we, I had that studio like four days sometimes remixing, doing two tracks, trying to knock off two tracks in four days and or that, maybe even five. Yeah. That's what you try to do. You try to get them done. It's, you come in with your... Yeah. And any studio time you get left over, you just try to do your own stuff, your own independent labels. If you want to do something for, for um, Strictly or anything, try and see if you can get it done in this. You know, any, any leftover studio time you're taking, man, you do it down there. And plus, I used to have, I had stacks of equipment, so I used to bring all my equipment down there as well. And that took a day, that took like loads of hours because I, I had free samplers, I had the drum machine, I had mod, keyboard modules and all that as well, like like the JV1080, um, the JV2080. I had loads of modules, the M1 Corks and all that. So I had all these stuff in modules and I had to wire all that up. It's like wiring up a system, I had to wire all that up through the desk before we started to get everything doing, you know what I mean? So I did all my pre-production in my home studio, well, in the studio that me and my mate had back in the day. So when we did that, we took everything to the big studio and around, wire up there, and then we start to bring everything up on the desk. And that's what we did on all our mix stands. It's a Children, lot of work, man. Children, listen to this carefully. 1500 plus the engineer's cost, too, for mixing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, it was like two and a half thousand pounds a day, day a to day. have that room going 24 yeah, 7. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do the math. I call it lockout, man. Lockout for the, the day. Do the math. So, yeah, man. four days, he's already at 10,000 pounds. Yep, yep. And he still ain't been, and, he's, and, and remember, you're charging them on top as well. You know what I mean? So, it's a lot of money, man. Back in them days, the money was good. But it was a lot of work. And the work was harder. The work was much harder, man, back in the day. But if you used to get vocals, if you get vocals at 96 BPM, it's not like how you got it now that you can just throw everything in the, in the computer and time stretch it. You had to time stretch on a sampler. You had to take out your calculator and work it out on your calculator, then start chopping every beat on every key and time stretching everything oh, one by one. And that took hours. That took like five, six hours. That alone, that's just a daytime. Taking the air out in between each word to get it to be on time oh. to speed it up. Oh. Right, right, right. And you were laying out each track on the key, you know? It was it was a lot of work, man. So your pre-production you know? time would be three to four days, five days maybe, to get ready to go and mix for two days. Well, what I, no, my pre-production time was one day, get everything done, two days, if I'm doing one remix, I'll get everything, all the music and most of the ideas done. Then we'll go to the big studio to mix down. Or what we'll do, we'll bring all the equipment there and we'll still might be adding more stuff because we might want to do a dub after, you know what I mean? So 
we've got sorry, we've got everything there. So what we usually do, we go there. We've got all the ideas done already. So what we do is bringing up everything and trying to mix it down on the desk, yeah, and bouncing it or bouncing it to tape and mixing from the tape. You know what I mean? So there's always going to be. You might want to add some more strings, or you might want to add some piano. Or you want to make the beat a bit more fast. So you know, you never know what you want to do when you get down there, man. To make the music sound better. You know, you, what sounds in, good in your studio doesn't sound using, the same in another studio. But are we using live ish, um, live instruments? We're using live players with their instruments to come in and tracking stuff, or you just basically yeah. everything was all MIDI. We had some live, live, live instruments and that, but it wasn't really that much. It was mainly, everything was MIDI played, man. Most of the stuff was all played MIDI, you know. And that was another expense as well, man. Because anyone you're bringing in, I'm trying to deal with costs here, you know what I mean? So bringing in musicians and all that, man, it wasn't, you know, the budget that we was getting. We didn't want to spend that budget money on bringing in musicians, so we tried our own thing, and you know, it worked for us, you know. Well, that's the thing. The more you, the, the less expense, the more you kept. Yeah, man, that's right. You know what I mean? Too much, too much musicians, man. It's just more money. And when you're bringing in musicians, they were charging a lot of money back then, you know? Studio time, musicians, you know what I mean? Good thing I can program. After, the engineer's got to get paid. Imagine I had a programmer. We had to pay him as well. And the budget's, the budget's just looking lower and lower. <laughs> nah. Yeah, it was, but you know something, man? I've never changed what happened. All those days, they were all good times. Good times. Meeting you, meeting all the Americans I met, all my heroes of America, like you, Smack. You know what I mean? I've never changed that for anything, man. It was the best times of my life. Golden. You know, the 90s is the best. Me personally, 90s are the best for house music, man. It was the best. Oh, you yeah. Know? You know, oh. I went. Winter Music Conference, all of us hanging out at the Winter Music Conference, you know. It was the best, man. I, was play, I played at Garage Seat at the Winter Music Conference, man. Can't get better than that, man. Playing at the Winter Music Conference, testing that, road testing your latest remix, you know, and you got Kenny Dope and Louis Vega. I was on the same remix, looking down at you saying, shit, what the fuck's this? Sorry about the switch. Shit, That's what's exactly this? exactly what was going What is this, Booker? What the hell is this? What, what, what the hell is this? I don't know what you the know hell is I was like, what you know, book is what's this tune? You know what I mean? Because I did the remix. Yeah, this was a Jody Watley remix we did for um, Atlantic off the hook, and then we did it for New. I did it for Atlantic New. I didn't do it for here. I did it for America. You know, and um, Master Work re-recorded it. It sent me all the vocals, parts, and all that because she had to re-sing it. You know, and when I got it, I did my thing on it. You know, and I first played it in Miami when I went to went. Oh uh, yeah, we went to Miami. I just got a test press from. Um, Gene Branch from East West. So he said, gave me a test press. It was all mastered and all that. I dropped it. Dropped it at night. Um, Garage City. Paul Trumbull was playing that night as well. You know, they were, they were the best times for me, man. Playing at Garage City and all them parties, they were the best times for me. Booker, one thing I want to bring up before we leave you. I mm. saw a picture of you standing by Gordon Mack and that new plaque they laid down for trouble. Where exactly did yeah. you that was in Camden. That was in Camden Town. So for uh, um, just recognizing Paul and Gordon for the things that they've done, you know what I mean? It's like um, just recognizing what they've done in Camden and and what they've done for the scene and all that. Because Kiss FM is really around North London, Camden side and all that. 
And Paul grew up around that side as well. Camden, Paul's DJ at most clubs around the electric ballroom and all that random sides and that, you know what I mean? So, you know, it was it was like a plaque for loads of singers and artists and all that as well. So we, we must When get you come to London, London, make sure you go down there and have a look, man. I am gonna go look because I saw that mm. I saw you there standing above they put it in the in the ground on a yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful plaque for him. He deserved it. He did a lot for the yeah. city. Paul did a lot for the scene. A tremendous get, amount. A tremendous amount yeah. for the scene. He didn't get the record. He didn't get the record. Me personally, I don't think he got the record. That's usually so how it is in life. You don't yeah, get the flowers true. when you're living. It's when you're gone. It is when you're gone, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> It's true, it's That's true, why we true. have true house stories. Because trust me, if it was he was here, he would be on telling us. That's the right. Story. That's right. That's right. Paul's done a lot, man. He's you know he's very inspirational to me as well. You know what I mean? Um, I used to go to his shows and used to do his shows up, kiss a film and see him live in the mix. He used to get so much tunes, man. I used to ask him for tunes as well. He would never give me. You know what I mean? But he used to get bare. He used to get loads and loads and loads of. He would tunes, get man. stuff. He would get stuff while it was in production. It wasn't even finished That's yet. Right. He was testing yeah, stuff. Yeah. That's right. Road testing that, man. Yeah. He's even got stuff now. There's stuff that I know he's got that he's left behind that would never come out. Oh, never yeah. ever been out. You know? Tons of stuff. Tons yeah, of stuff. Yeah. 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 You know? So, okay, man. I can't thank you enough, brother. I think you covered a hell of a lot of history. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me, bro. Big thank you. You know what I mean, Lenny? We got that long term, man. It's a pleasure, you know what I mean, bro? It's an even pleasure knowing you and getting to know you and being around you and all that, and hooking up and all that, bro. You know, the main thing, we're all still here. Totally. You know, we're still all here, man. Season, so, we're still going to keep doing what we do, make that music. Yeah. That's make all I know, man. That's all I'm going to do, bro. Make music. Make music and just feel happy. I, I'm happy when I make music. You know, I'm really happy. Well, that's well, a big cool. shout out to... Yeah. We now know you're cooking tea, cooking tea, cooking up that music, <laughs> cooking up, man. Always cooking, but it's booker tea. It's always going to be booker tea. But I, I do cook up music, you know. But I've got to send a. Eh? Wait, where the name? Who bestowed Booker on you? No, that's my last name. My name's Gary Booker. Yeah, I know. Instead of being Gary Booker, why did we call but you? I put the tea. In. No, it's just a thing, you know. You Booker T. Washington, Booker T. Jones, Booker T. And the MGs. You know, so I said, let me just join them, Booker T. You know, my friends just call me Booker at school, and I just put the T on as a DJ okay. thing, you know. Okay. Yeah, what's happening, Books? What's happening, Books? What's happening, Booker? You know, so what I did was just put the T on the end. Gotcha. And that was it. Yeah. yeah, yeah okay, yeah. see, because people want to know that stuff. I knew, I knew it was Gary Booker, but I want people to yeah. know how's Booker T. Yes, and you got to thank everyone and your shout-outs before I let you go. Anybody you want to shout-out you forgot? Yeah, let me shout-out to Michael Gray, man, because I knew him from a little while as well. Big shout-out to Michael, because we both... I used to work at DMC Studios as well back in the day, and you know, I did some work up there and all that. Got to know Michael Gray and all that. Big shout-out to him. Big shout-out to um, Ricky, Bobby and Steve, you know. Um, big shout-out to Frankie Fonset, CJ, McIntosh. These are the guys that really inspired me, get me into the music. Oh, I sent a big shout out to Nikki Tracks as well. Luke Coke, Nikki Tracks, Future Tracks, did a track with her called Give Me Joy. You know, she helped me out as well. You know, um, Luke Coke as well. Um, Final Solution. Big shout out to Rest in Peace, Phil Asher. Rest in Peace, Paul Trouble Anderson. You know, I got to know Phil Asher from back in the day as well. Um, 
big shouts to all the labels out there that signed my stuff back in the early 90s you know um really appreciated that that you believed in my music you know a big shout to Dave Pachoni as well uh, for fun for signing my first single big shouts to Ferdy you know we gave him my shot you know Dean Gillard that used to work for Universal um Steve Wolf used to work at Universal Lisa Loud used to work at Virgin big shout to Gene Branch Nancy Noyes all that crew back in the day you know the Farley's and Ellers who signed my stuff at Junior Boys and Terry Farley um Big shouts to everyone anyway, you know what I mean? Love, big big up Mickey D as well. He was the one who hooked me up with um, Freddie Shannon and um, Jerome Sydenham and all that. I hanged out with Freddie as well, Freddie and Charles Dawkins in New York back in the day as well. So big shout out to Freddie, big shout out to Charles Dawkins and that, you know? And big shout out to um, Eddie Perez as well. Have me around your studio, man. Bear love, got bear love for you, bro. That's awesome, bro. Yeah. Well, congratulations. You now part of the alumni of True House Stories. True House Stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we got your story detailed and clear, and it was a pleasure hearing it from you, the inside nooks and crannies of what got you to where you are now and where mm. you came from. That's the most important mm-hmm. because it's not how you got there, you know, mm. or the ending. It's a lot of it's where you started to get yeah. there and the dreams. Yeah. Yeah, but still staying there, being there as well, still staying, you know what I mean? Still being positive to the scene and that, you know? You know, I love this scene, man. I love house music. I really do. I love the vibes. I love the atmosphere. I love the excitement of it, you know? Just everything I love about it, man. So, you know, I'll be here, man. I'll always be here making house music. I'll be here trying to get as much DJ news as possible before, before I drop off the earth. But, you know, I'm here. Congratulations and don't I, I, I tell you stop, you know, because what are you gonna stop and do? You're gonna go make another record. That's what you're gonna stop and do. That's what I'm gonna do, man. Can't stop, won't stop, bro. There you go. Yeah, man. Next week, Robert Cavillis of CNC Music Factory coming on. And uh, not next week, sorry, two weeks. True House Stories, October 25th. We have ADE next week already. Oh my god, ADE time. And to everybody in the UK and around the world, a good night. Stay blessed. Thank you, Mr. Booker, man. Thank you, too. Pound it. Everyone, take care. See you October 25th right here for another True House Stories. Robert Cavillis.